Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Hey friends, how are we doing? Welcome back to the podcast. I am just getting over being sick. So if I sound a little low energy, that's why. This was a very fascinating conversation. I interviewed Bill Yo. He wrote the book Unvarnished Faith. He's also part of one of America's wealthiest families, and he's also a devoted Christian. He grew up Episcopalian, then converted to Catholicism. So let me just tell you now, Bill's going to use language that might trigger you if you're an evangelical. You might hear words like missions trip or ministry, but they're very different meanings for Bill. So just keep that in mind as he's talking, because as I was interviewing him, I was thinking about you, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I bet if they hear Bill say it this way, they're going to think, oh my God, this guy's an evangelical conservative Christian nationalists or something. And that's not the case, okay? Bill is a Catholic and also is someone who's wrestling through. What does it mean to run a very successful family business that gives him a lot of privilege? And then how does he use that privilege for good and to help other people? So like I said, very interesting conversation, very different from from my normal type of guests. But I like giving you a wide array of guests. I like giving you different topics. I like giving you people with different perspectives. You don't have to agree with Bill. You don't have to say, yes, Bill, I'm all in. You're allowed to disagree, but it's important to know what else is out there. So I appreciate you, Bill, for coming on. It it meant a lot. Friends, if you want to support the show, you can give this episode a rating and a review. That would be fantastic. And we are a nonprofit holding space for thousands of people marginalized by the evangelical church. Donating helps us keep the lights on and helps keep this work going completely paywall-free. You can donate via the link in our show notes. All right, friends, let me know what you think about this interview with Bill. Talk to you all soon. Hi, my name is Kim, and I came to the New Evangelicals via the podcast. I didn't grow up in church. I didn't discover evangelicalism until I was in my early 20s. And during the time that I went to a Southern Baptist church, I thought that it was okay. I formed what I thought were true friendships. And there were some things over the years that kind of gave me pause for a minute and made me think, I don't know, this makes me kind of feel uncomfortable. But I just kind of let it go and didn't dwell on it too much. And then when COVID happened and we were forced to not go to church, it was like somebody took the blinders off and I was able to really look at some of the behaviors and experiences that I had had over the past few years and say, wow, that's kind of messed up. And ever since then, I have been an avid fan of TNE and I listen to the podcast. I'm part of the Facebook group. I follow on Instagram, TikTok occasionally. And I really am very passionate about making sure that evangelical leaders are held accountable for what they have done and continue to do and make sure that people know that there is another way forward and that you can reclaim your Christian faith. Thank you. 
All right. Well, Bill, yo, great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for making time. This will be a pretty unique conversation. I don't always have, I don't always have someone who does what you do for a living on the show. So great to be here with you. Thank you. Awesome. And, and Tim, I don't always get the chance to talk with somebody who does what you do for a living. So this will be great <laughs> for both of us. Well, I'm, I'm going to read just part of the synopsis that, 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 that you're, I guess publicist sent me. Here's what he said in the beginning. A member of one of America's wealthiest families, Bill's life has taken a sharp turn toward working in the nonprofit and faith-based space with a, with a, a specific regard for unsheltered, unhoused, and unfed people. And when I first saw that, I was like, wow, this is very interesting to have someone like this reach out to me. So give me some of your background here. I mean, who is Bill? What, what, what makes you part of one of America's wealthiest families? And then what started to, turn your life into this work with nonprofit and stuff like that. Sure. No, uh, well, thank you. And thank you again for having me on. Yeah, that's a little cringeworthy, right? That that sort of uh, contrast there. But born and raised in the Philadelphia area, and I'm a third generation owner of a of a large family business. We have a 120-some-year-old company with 43,000 employees. So uh, a very big concern. And I had spent most of my adult life uh, up until about eight years ago working full-time as an executive and an owner in the business and then eight years ago, my life really changed when my mom passed away. She had been sick for a while. And so it was, you know, kind of months and then the weeks and then the days and then the hours. And her, her passing was, was sad as it would be to, to lose a parent, but it was also beautiful in that, you know, we, we know the moment her pain ended. There was a beautiful sunset streaming through the window. We, we literally, I was holding her hand the moment she went to be with God. But for me personally, what really changed my life was I didn't have the words at the time to describe it, but I literally felt a, a push on my chest in this moment. And what I could ultimately discern is that was God telling me that, that you know, you're not living your life the way you should be. Hmm. Just sort of letting that unpack itself in my mind and in my heart. Within a few months, I decided that I wanted to pull out of a lot of my management responsibilities and, and instead go ahead and research and, and, and write a book on our father, which I ended up doing and sort of by extension on our, on our family and our business. And then I started engaging more in my faith and exploring fellowship and small groups. And then one of my brothers and his wife have a, a Christian food ministry that is associated with some overseas missions trips. So I started doing some of those and a, a number of things just started cascading where I started, where I was called more and more to not have my faith be part of my life, but faith become the central part of my life and, and sort of the conduit or the lens through which I saw everything I did. And, and I guess, you know, from what you read in the beginning, that that led to, you know, understanding as, you know, Luke 12, 48, we hear that you know, everyone who much is given of them, much is expected. And that has become more and more central to what I do in that, you know, because I am a person of means, I am a person of privilege, but Luke 12, 48 tells me not that I get to do less than everybody else or the same, but it compels me to, oh, that means I get to do more. I not only have to do more, but I get to do more. And, and that's, I view that as a privilege to how can I, work with other people, walk with other people, and, and, and by extension, help us, you know, better serve the underserved in our, in our communities, both all around the world, but also right in our own backyards and our own zip, zip code. So the more I focus on that, the more rewarding it becomes. And, and thankfully, the more our, our, uh, our networks seem to grow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that, that is, you know, quite the initial journey. I am curious, you know, I guess for you being in, in this space where it seems like you kind of occupy two different worlds where you have this really successful family business, like you said, you're a person of means. What, what, 
were, were there certain moments in your life that started making you think about how other people live, maybe underserved populations and stuff like that? And then, mm-hmm. you know, what are some ways that you decided to start being proactive and helping those communities? Yeah, no, great question. Thank you for that. You know, I would say prior to, to 2015, there were certainly moments, but I would say they were more observational or even intellectual for me. I mean, certainly my, my wife has always had a connection and a finger on the pulse of kindness and, and universal dignity. And, and, and so I was kind of around that as part of it. And, and certainly as part of a family business and a private company, we have always uh, had part of what we do, the success of our communities and how do we invest, you know, both in terms of businesses and also charitably in different things. But but, you know, it was really after 2015 that these things started to happen. My first overseas mission trip that I ended up writing and publishing my second book on. And then the pandemic, really, I would say, is the moment that really that sort of solidified the, the course turn or the course correction, if you will. So and, and th- there were three things to that. You know, It was March of 2020 when the world literally shut down. And the first thing that showed up for me was I thought it was great. You know, all of my kids were back under the roof. We had two college age children at the time. We weren't expecting that to happen. And mm. But then I realized like, geez, look at us, we're all under our roof and we have pizza night and we have movie night and we can go for walks. And yet I'm seeing on the news about these these tenement buildings in the Bronx and all these different things happening that were just, it, it made this dichotomy so apparent for me of, of my and our privilege. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing, we would go on these daily walks. A lot of people did in that spring of 2020. And and I, for the really first time in my life, certainly my adult life, I saw the earth come to life. I saw nature come to life. I saw creation cycle, incredible creation of God, you know, come to life. So one day, maybe it's a new site, you know, it's a new shoot of grass or something. The next day it's a, a new smell because something had bloomed. The next day it's a new sound because some songbird had returned. And even, even a feel or a taste at some point about the way the air changed. And, and I just became very aware and connected to creation and the cycle of creation and, and are as humans, connection to that. And then third and finally was George, George Floyd's, George Floyd's murder uh, in the end of May of that same spring. And, and that really just, that hit me right in the gut, right in the heart in a way that thought, you know, I need to be doing something more. And so I, in a, in a few weeks found myself in the, the religious and, and uh, religious studies and theology department of, of Villanova university, which is right around the corner from mm-hmm. me. I had a, a faith conversion from Episcopalian to Roman Catholic and, and, the years leading up to that and ended up enrolling in a, in a master's in ministry and theology and, you know, really geared towards how can I discern my talents and gifts and how can I minister to those around me and those who I may not know by name, but I know by affiliation as being fellow image bearers of, of God. And, you know, I would say that that series of events at that point kind of solidified and set me down this road. Were you brought up in like a religious household? Was it Christian or evangelical? Yeah, no, it's, I, I was a mainline Protestant tradition, so Episcopalian. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I kind of described my upbringing and really into my into my mid-40s, you know, it was my faith life was one component of my life. You know, like a lot of mainline Protestant traditions, you know, we would attend church most weekends. We, we had the summers off. I still don't quite understand why a lot of mainline Protestant traditions tend to not, you know, worship through the summer the way evangelicals and non-denominationals and Roman Catholics might. But but, you know, faith was part of my life, and it really wasn't until a series of these conversion events started with my mom dying and, and up through and including these pandemic activities where it became the central part of it. But but what's kind of neat about it, and I talk, you know, even today with, with my father, who's 87, about this, is that the seeds that they sowed 
in their children when we were younger, all, all sort of germinated and sprouted and bloomed at different times. But in each of each of their four children, we lost my sister several years before my mom, but, but in the, the four boys, you know, those, those seeds all sprouted in different ways and, mm. and ultimately a different faith tradition. So, but the, mm. the short answer to your, to your question is that, you know, I'm a lifelong mainline Protestant who converted to Roman Catholicism and published a bestseller on an evangelical mission trip. So <laughs> I, I like to talk about being proudly an uppercase C Roman Catholic Christian and a lowercase C universal Catholic Christian and sort of everything that comes along with that. So. Yeah. That, you know, you have a really fascinating story because a lot of folks that we engage with, they find themselves growing up in like a very conservative evangelical framework and they eventually deconstruct that. That's a very popular word these days or mm-hmm. they start renegotiating their faith. And a lot of times the catalyst for those, for that, for that thing is COVID, George Floyd, for me mm-hmm. and, and, and Trump usually. And for me, that's my story too, is a lot of my faith change rapidly when those three things kind of happen. You know, I also saw that the murder of George Floyd and I, that was one of the moments for me where I, I thought, Ooh, something is really wrong that maybe I never had eyes for, you know, and, and I, I all of a sudden things weren't making sense. The same thing with Ahmaud Arbery's death. You know, that was the mm-hmm. kind of the catalyst for, for that change. So it's interesting right. because I, I hear, it seems like broadly speaking in our culture, those situations change people one way or another. Right. COVID really changed people in one direction or another. George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Bernard Taylor, same thing. Our current political climate as well. So it's just fascinating to see that mm-hmm. even you coming from a more Episcopalian tradition that maybe was not as quote unquote serious about your faith being your whole life, how even these three situations or two situations change you over time. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think, and, and you, you highlighting those three, what the, the thread I would draw through all those is, the incredible division that exists in society. And, and, and I, I, I like to talk a lot about d- division and, and how we got here and what we can do about it, because it just seems hopeless. You know, we're, we're entering into another national election cycle. We all remember 2016. We all remember 2020. There's nothing telling us that 24 isn't going to be any, any more crazier than, than, yeah. than those were. But we're in this situation where, you know, our, our, in, in America, our political system was never intended to be of full-time politicians. You know, it was tend to be that citizen governors where things were rotated. But now we have these full-time politicians, and then we have this this media extremist pundit business model that that undergirds and and exacerbates those things. And then we have this faceless digital age mm. that allows sort of this uh, anonymous vitriol to be spewed. And so yeah. all these things end up preying on what I would say are, are the relatively thin extremes of our personhood, of our ethos, of our values, of our belief system. They, they sort of have insidiously pulled us away from the, the incredible common core and foundation we have as being created in, in the image of the divine. Hmm. And, and so we're, we're all caught up in this division and now we're all sort of unknowingly paying back into it. So, you know, my, my belief is, you know, I don't know how to solve that, by the way. I, I, I know when, and we don't have enough time. But I do believe that the power of dialogue and the power of civil discourse and the power of of seeing and understanding others before wanting to be seen and understood yourself and doing those things in 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 face-to-face, thoughtful, collaborative discussions as opposed to 124-character kind of back-and-forth type things – that's going to move us more towards the common good. That's going to move us t- more towards a collective true north. Again, it won't solve anything, but but I do believe we have the ability to simultaneously hold our own beliefs 
and create space for a belief that's inconsistent with ours. And if we focus on the relationship and not these these elements that divide us, I think we have a chance to march forward much better together. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I hear a lot of what you're saying. and I don't disagree. I, I think for a lot of people in, in the audience, it's tough because a lot of what we grew up in seems to be kind of on the cutting edge of causing a lot of the the division right now. You know, we, we, we track a lot of the evangelical spaces. I track Christian nationalism and I'm, I'm pretty right. tapped into that stuff. And it's frustrating and sad, you know, to watch the, the faith be hijacked by some people for, uh, as a weapon of oppression instead of a tool of liberation, so to speak. Yes. Right. And, and it's difficult, but I do agree with you. Like I've often found myself holding two simultaneous positions where publicly when it comes to policy, I, I oppose a lot of those things for sure, but I'm still willing to talk to those people relationally. And that's how you kind of make that progress behind the scenes, you know, and yes. it's tough because a lot of people in the audience, they, they are queer or, or they're in the BIPOC community. And so a lot of the Christian nationalist rhetoric is really aimed at those people. So I have an obligation and I feel like I, I have a duty to be very loud in opposition to that. And at the same time, not dehumanizing those people because we don't want to, we don't want to repeat the cycle of chaos all over again that keeps us in this cycle, this tornado, you know, of, of just dehumanization. Yeah. No. And, 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 and sadly, there can be a lot of what I'll say misappropriation of, of Jesus's earthly ministry of even, the, even, even the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the Pentateuch in terms of, uh, the prosperity gospel in terms yeah. of the chosen people, in terms of yeah. what God wants. And I use air quotes intentionally in that for those who are just listening, that to me runs totally in the face of the gospel message of the gospel calling, totally in the face of the fact that Jesus came to save not just the, the chosen people, but for everybody mm-hmm. and that there's room for everybody. And it's it's ultimately about the relationship among all of us, because if, if God is dwelling within all of us, if we're committed to, to our relationship with the divine and we're not committed to a relationship on some level with everybody and a recognition that everybody is born with dignity, then I, I feel like there's a, an hypocrisy at work that is only going to continue to to sow more of these seeds of division. Let's talk about uh, about faith in business. I mean, this is a really interesting conversation because, listen, we know that in America the wealth gap has only exploded over time. You know, COVID a lot of a lot of corporations ex- expanded greatly in in their profit margin, while frontline workers, you know, their wages were stagnant. We know that 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 wages have been stagnant for a long time. And here you are, like to your point, right? You have an immense amount of means and privilege, but you also are a Jesus follower. Have you found tension there for you personally when it comes to some of the words of Jesus about, you know, rich people, <laughs> frankly, right? And also yeah. Running, yeah. running a business with a lot of employees that probably makes a lot of money, et cetera. Walk me through some of those tensions right. for you, kind of, no, I, kind I, of holding both. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you, you brought this up because it's an area that I like to wade into because it, it, it can be one that feels kind of, uh, sensitive or lightning, you know, roddy kind of thing or whatever. Yeah, and right. yeah, certainly the, uh, getting through that eye of the needle, uh, as a rich man getting to heaven. <laughs> well, I don't uh, want to say that directly, Bill, you know, <laughs> no, no, it, it lands heavy on me. So, um, but no, I, I, I have, uh, again, had a lot of great mentors and a lot of great advice and, and walking with small group fellowship mates and, and have, kind of come to a point where I, where I feel good about how I reconcile my faith life with business life with secular activities. And so, 
you know, you, you mentioned our, our, our business, for example, our business is not a faith forward business. And that if you go to our vision or our values or mission, you won't see the idea of, you know, sort of Christ centered or the kingdom or those kind of things that you might see in some businesses. And I don't assign meaning or right or wrong to that. It just is what it is. But from a personal perspective, in terms of my leadership style, you know, my leadership style is very much one of servant leadership. Mm-hmm. And if I'm working with people in our business and, and say we're, we're, we're talking with a new client or going to a new business, you know, my thing is, look, you know, how do you want to employ me in this effort, you know, to get to know this company better, get to know these, this prospective client better? That's how do I serve you as a leader? So, and, and obviously in, in Jesus Christ, we have the ultimate example of the servant leadership, you know, that, that he who serves comes first, he who serves is the leader. Vision, you know, vision is another thing we talk a lot about in business. And this, get, this gets back to our conversation about division. You know, so often you hear people say, gosh, you know, we've lost our way as a society and we need to go back and we need to do different things. And, and I look at, again, Christ's earthly ministry. Now, Christ would go back when, when, you know, he would quote Hebrew scripture when the Pharisees and the sort of leaders of the day got it wrong or interpreted for human means. But Christ's main message was, let's go forward and let's create a new kingdom and a new way of existing. And so I take that as not, you know, whether you're talking as a community or as a company, let's not go back. Let's create a new, a new way of interacting, a new way of relating, a new value proposition, whatever you might call it because that's what the calling is. So looking at any of these different things, and there's a number of others around organizational change, core values, you know, different things that in my mind, Christ's ministry and, and, and the gospel message really reinforces for me, even though I then enjoy the, let's call it the intellectual and the spiritual exercise of how do I translate that into the vernacular of the business world or, you know, local community or the coffee shop or whatever it might be. Uh, so I can still live my faith and still evangelize by the witness of my life, but not do it in a Bible thumping way that, that has the potential for, you know, just kind of coming across odd sometimes. Hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. How about when it comes to like, I, th- I think a lot about like business ethics. I mean, I, I grew up in a small business, very small, just a few employees. Mm-hmm. My, my parents own a construction business and they're very much Christians. And I saw a lot of their ethics coming through and how they treated their employees, how much they paid their employees. My dad, a very conservative man who hated paying his taxes would say, well, I think it's sinful to lie. So we got to pay our taxes, right? That was right. kind of his thing. Right. You know, how about for you when it comes to like those kinds of ethics um, and then also with running a business, how does that work for you guys? Sure. No, and I'll, I'll, I'll just give a couple examples on that. One sort of at more of a uh, an ethos level, which would be the idea of dignity. And, you know, certainly I would say as much as Christ's message and the Christian message is about, you know, people, everybody being born with dignity and the right to dignity. You know, we we help find people jobs. And not only do we create jobs in our own company, but one of our businesses is a staffing company. So we mm-hmm. literally help connect people to jobs. And I really believe there's a lot of dignity in people finding work. There's a lot of dignity that goes beyond food on the table and clothes on the back and roofs overhead that people derive from, from being told that you are worthy, you do good job, you're going to be, you know, remunerated for that job and you, and you're going to get promotions for that job. I think that, that fills people's psyche and soul in ways, like I said, that goes beyond what fills their bank account. But if you think about, you know, you mentioned like, you know, paying workers or, or those kinds of things, you know, there, there's the whole idea in, in, in certainly the Catholic doctrine about just wages and workers earning, make, earning just wages. Right. When our company, we are extremely committed to making sure that, 
you know, our people are paid at least as well as the market would pay. But, you know, our high performers, they can have the chance to earn more here than somewhere else. We want that. And so we do extensive benchmarking of our jobs and, and categorizing and making sure if the market moves for this kind of position, we want to make sure that we're going to move with the market. Um, if we, we find ourselves in a segment of the market where our business isn't profitable enough to support the people that that what people should be earning in that space, then we have to reconcile that disconnect somehow. Maybe it's just not a place for us. So, you know, we, we never want to be in a situation where we're underpaying our people or our people don't recognize that through pay, through paid time off, through other benefits, that they're not feeling like they are being justly rewarded, not just monetarily, but also in terms of their work-life balance experience and, and the other things that come along with why people work. And I really connect that very closely from a personal perspective to my faith lens. Mm. Yeah, that's 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 great to hear and good to know. I hear from a lot of people, you know, that are are struggling to find work or a job that 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 could pay that could pay uh, a decent wage. And we all know that that things are up, inflation is up, et cetera. So it's been it's been difficult. Yes. I'm kind of curious about this mission trip that you took, and I want to preface. A lot of people in my audience, they hear the word mission strip and they go, mm-hmm. what do you mean mission strip? I'm a right. little, I'm a little sus, right. you know, it's a, yeah. because, and frankly, the reason why is because a lot of us have been part of mission strips and we look back yeah. and we're like, well, you know, did we, did we really actually help? Were we there to right. maybe, you know, bring our, our values over there instead of learn, et cetera. But yes. for you, it seems like this, this mission strip that, that you took a while ago really changed you. So break that down for us. Where did you go yeah. and, and what did you do? No, I'd love to. And and first of all, yeah, I'll 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 come in behind that that segment of your audience. And you know, before I went on my first overseas trip, you know, one one of the things that that we learned was this whole idea about please don't go in country and and, and pet the poor. Don't pet the poor. And yeah. and and those people who have been on a trip understand, I think, exactly what that means. And and then this this great anecdote I read in one of the books before we went down there was, you know, somebody again in country who you would go visit would say, gee, that's funny, you Westerner, you American, you North American, whatever. I didn't realize I was poor until you came here and told me I was poor. Mm. You know, and so we have all these biases that we go in and and certainly someone might say, well, geez, if you're going down there and helping, you know, build a trench for a sewer for a schoolhouse, well, why not invest in the local, you know, all those things. I think all those things are very valid. I, I've now been able to go on three short-term mission trips, two to Latin America, one to Africa. And there's a couple of things out of those that I found immensely valuable. You know, on, on the surface, uh, particularly the ones in Central America, were, were with a food ministry. My brother and his wife's food ministry, Servants with a Heart. And that's what led to me writing the book that I have out now. You know, we're going into some of the most underdeveloped, malnourished, food insecure places literally in the world. And we're giving them food. So, so clearly, if, if we're providing food to people who are hungry, that is a service. That's a form of ministry. Now, the reality is that that those calories will be metabolized and digested and they'll be hungry again later that day, the next day, whatever the case may be. So there's only so far that will go, but it does help with brain development, a lot of different things. But along with that, what our what our missions have focused on is is not just providing the food, but how do you provide relationship and how do you provide connection and how do you provide this bond of humanity and, and therefore this bond of divinity because we're, we're, we're image bearers. Mm. And I found those kinds of connections to be incredibly rewarding in ways that, you know, a, a calorie count may not measure. Now, in, in, in full fairness, that's one of the places where I ask the question, you know, who's ministering to whom here? Because if mm. I'm giving somebody food when they're hungry, there's clearly a, you know, a, a service or a, a value there. But what am I getting back from these people? And and the book that I wrote on my first trip, it, it's called Unvarnished Faith. 
And what I saw and what I got back was an unvarnished version of faith. It wasn't Episcopalian. It wasn't, you know, a Christian. It wasn't, you know, it didn't have all these doctrinal, denominational sorts of things. Didn't even really have a church, right? But mm. but it was a it was an unvarnished way of a belief in God and an unvarnished way of being grateful for what people had and for knowing that when they were in a state of want, if they prayed you know, they would hope that God would answer their, their, their prayers. So I, so I opened the book with a story about a woman who lives in a trash dump. Uh, her name's Maria. And uh, I met, we met her father and we met her children. So she's the second of three generations that are literally raised in a trash dump with, with trash on fire, no running water, no public utility, any of those things. And, you know, we're asking her, how do you feel about this? And she said, yo estoy contenta. I am happy. And we were bl literally blown away by how can you say you're happy? And she said, well, I'm happy because I woke up this morning. I didn't know how I was going to feed my children. I prayed to God and God sent you with the food. I just thought like, boy, am I doing faith wrong? You know, am I doing like uh, the material trappings? And again, they're called trappings for a reason of my world are really clouding my judgment on things. And so how do we unvarnish that faith and really focus on the love and the, the relationship that brings us together? So now, with all those things said, you know, not everybody has the ability to take a week and fly a couple thousand miles and do all the things that these overseas trips bring. But but I don't think I would be able to be in mission and in ministry in my own backyard the way I am if I didn't have that, you know, sort of real shell cracking open experience of, of going there. My name is Joseph Yu, and I am an Episcopalian priest, and I fully believe in what Project Amplify is trying to do, which is to amplify voices and theology, to offer a counter-narrative to the voices and platforms that uses the Bible as a leverage to marginalize, to exclude, and to dehumanize. Project Amplify wants to amplify voices and theology to talk about the love and justice of God and just how diverse and how inclusive our God is and, and the gospel is. So if you want to help provide a different narrative of what it means to be a Christian and a follower of Christ, please click the link below to donate. Thank you. I'm kind of curious for you. I... I I struggle with this myself. You're as someone who's in the business world, where do you find the line between like charity and systemic change? Right? Like I, I think it's it's great that people, churches, maybe yourself, you know, we 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 make an effort to feed those who are hungry, to to clothe those who 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 need it, to shelter those who need it. But also on a systemic level, I feel like there are times where the government or something has to step in to say, well, this is a problem that 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 can only be solved systemically. And right. I'm not sure for you as a business owner where you land with that. So I'm kind of curious because I know what sure. I think about that. But I also yeah. know that oftentimes things become more complicated than we think, right? I, I wish I can wave a magic wand and just solve whatever issue I'm thinking about. But it's really usually a both and approach instead of either or. So for you, where do you see that line between, hey, the charity and, and the nonprofit world and this is good work, but also systemically, we have to make some serious changes in our culture to right. fix some of these problems. Yeah, no, and it's a, it's a great and a very insightful question and topic. And I, and I think it, I like your both and analogy. I think it's both serving the underserved through your time and through that idea of trying to you know, see the face of Jesus and trying to be the arms and legs of Jesus, but then also recognizing or and also recognizing where are times where one's position, one's talents and gifts, one's network can help affect some of that systemic change. So just here in my local 
you know, sort of mid-Atlantic Philadelphia area. I'm involved with a ministry that that goes down to uh, a part of North Philadelphia called Kensington. Oh yeah, and Kensington sadly is regarded as as potentially the opioid capital of the country and 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 maybe of the world. There, there's billions of dollars of opioids and heroin that are that are consumed there, and there are, there are open markets, open drug use markets, and we don't go down there to solve the problem. We we go down there, you know, with, with a with a Christian ministry, Mission Youth Philly. And we go down there to minister to and sit with and talk with and pray over our, our, our marginalized brothers and sisters who are on the street, who are actively using, who, you know, some of whom, but for the grace of God, go we. You know, you, you hear some of these stories of, yeah, I, I grew up in the main line, which is where I live. I hurt my shoulder, had Percocet, Oxycontin. Next thing I know, I'm on heroin. You know, and, and you hear these stories and it's it's hard to believe. So it's not all the other, it, it's us that can be there. But but we don't go down there with the, 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 the systemic change mindset. Now, conversely, I'm involved in another ministry, again, in this sort of broader part of the country where more of a grassroots ministry. And there is a, there is a like there are everywhere, particularly since the pandemic, uh, an emerging homelessness crisis and, and an issue mm-hmm. of people being unhoused and un, under sheltered. And so there's a place where we are trying to bring our networks and bring, you know, stakeholder mapping and bring strategic communication and collaborative work among the public sector, private sector and social sector and religious sector to say, how can we together collaborate, solve these problems rather than vilify these problems or, or wish these problems away or try and shove these problems somewhere else. So you know, I, I think it kind of depends. And, and if somebody is not equipped or rigged or enabled to do some of the more systemic things, then, and then please give your time and go minister to people. And even if you are equipped to do those things, if you do them without having your time with that one-on-one relationship, you're not going to, I think, have the, the profound connection and, and conviction to try and make those things happen if you don't have that one-on-one connection. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, my friend uh, Shane Claiborne is in Kensington. That's where he lives. And uh, he runs uh, The Simple Way and Red Letter Christians. I've been uh, decanted many times and it is, it is a very dystopian type of feel, you know, it's yeah. just, it's, it's, well it's tragic. I, I've, and it can feel overwhelming, right? Because you, you walk through and you're just like, how did mm-hmm. this happen? How do we, how do we get here? And I think that a lot of people listening to this, I think that part of the, the reason why I'm asking this question is because knowing my audience, a lot of us hear certain words, right? We hear words like minister, we hear words like mission strip, whatever it is. And we, we, we automatically add in our own categories as how we were taught them by our evangelical traditions, which for us right. really became unhealthy. You know, it was, it was this idea of, well, well, yeah, we can feed someone, but if we're not saving their souls, that's the real key here. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of us have found that, you know, when we talk about this stuff, we're always kind of curious, like, well, well, what does that actually mean to minister to someone? Right. Yeah. And I think right. you're right where sometimes as an individual, all I can do is touch another individual and hope that I can just let them know that, that they're seen and loved and felt yes. and heard. But also, are there ways that we can work together societally to take to, to to look at these issues on a systemic level and work with local governments and local companies and nonprofits to right. kind of address it? Because to your point, you're right. I mean, there is an un, an, an unhousing crisis that is happening. I was just in Portland uh, last week, and they mm. have a huge unhoused population sure. problem. Yeah. And so, obviously, if it was an easy fix, it'd be fixed. These things are complicated. But it, it's helpful to hear you say that the both and approach can work in different yes. contexts. Yeah. And, and, and a couple of things to address, as you said, sort of that, that, that evangelical tradition of if I'm not saving their souls. So there's, there's two things I would add to that is, you know, number one, 
this this word ministry can be kind of a scary word and you said sort of like a very loaded word but yeah you know i really think if if you know the the, the gospel calling is ultimately not to and, and i'm quoting somebody else a pastor from the, the late 20th century our gospel calling is not to be jesus but our gospel calling is to be who jesus would be if jesus were me mm. so if jesus had the talents and gifts that i have jesus would deploy those talents and gifts to the 100.0% capability every bit of them so what am I doing to discern, live into, and deploy this unique set of things that I've been imbued with and that I've developed in a way to drive relationship and to help other people? So, so that, that to me is ministry. You know, very few of us will minister from a pulpit or a pew. Most of our ministry can happen, whether it's in Kensington or whether it's in our own living room or whether it's on a Zoom screen or on a telephone call or at a bar, wherever it might be. If, if we are you know, being present to another person, in a way that we're allowing their dignity to flourish, that's ministry. So that's one. And then the second thing is, you know, we hear a lot about the, you know, what, what's the great commissioning? You know, we are all commissioned to go out and evangelize. And sort of two ways I look at that. Number one is it, it can be problematic if, if you're going out to evangelize and you're, you're sort of pushing yourself on somebody to, to, sh- to show them the right way and the wrong way. And I look at that as like, then somebody shows up with, hey, you know, Tim, you're really lucky I'm here because I'm here to tell you how you've been doing life wrong. Yeah. And you don't have to thank me for that, but I'm going to tell you how you've been doing life. Well, who wants to be told that they're doing life wrong? Right. And another way, the way I choose to look at it is, is how, how does the witness of my life serve to evangelize other people? So it's not Bill telling me that I'm doing life wrong. It's there's something about that guy, Bill. There's something about that guy, Tim, like mm. there's something with his faith journey and, and his faith walk and, and what he does and how he shows up. Like, I, I kind of want to be near that. Maybe I want to emulate part of that. Mm. That to me is, is, you know, the way to, to move forward around that. So, yeah, no, uh, that, that, that definitely makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, talk about, let's talk about some of the philanthropic side of your work. I mean, you, you have this, this radical shift in 2015, 2016. So uh, what else do you do as far as like, you know, you, you just said, if what, how would Jesus be if Jesus were me? So what does that look like for yeah. you as, as someone who sure. was built? And I, you know, and, and mine, you know, has really evolved down in or evolved into what I call serving the underserved. Well, it's two parts. It's serving the underserved. And that would include people experiencing homelessness, food insecurity, addiction, mental and physical ailments, all those things that tend to kind of run their course with each other. Mm. And, and that's not to say that people who are supportive of, of, you know, equality in healthcare or environmental stewardship or other things aren't equally as dignified and important that this happens to be where I have felt called into this area. Mm. But the other component of it for me, which maybe is a little more unique, is this idea of walking with and ministering to other people of means and other people of privilege, you know, who's kind of a, a group who might often be vilified, you know, as, as oh, well, they're privileged, they're, they're the upper class, they're all these things. But n- number one, but they're also image bearers of God. We are also image bearers of God. And so the right to dignity and, and the right to have their insecurities and their fears and their shortcomings validated and accepted and made space for. But, but the other thing is, if, if, if people of means and communities of means and privilege are able to, to, to divert even just a percentage or two more of their energy, you know, that time, talent and treasure thing towards the common good, that can have a... a you know, some kind of a fulcrum effect, an arithmetic geometric effect on, on helping serve the underserved. So, so for me, it's the idea of how do we bring those two elements together 
And again, there's this two-way ministry that goes on when that happens that can help realize the kingdom, evangelize by the witness of our lives and, and you know, bring everybody more into alignment. Hmm. And that, that's, I guess that's a long-winded way of saying that's how I'm sort of doing philanthropy, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting. So, I, yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting to hear you say that, that the other half of that is working with people maybe in, in like in your sphere of influence or, or, mm-hmm. or, or with your level of, you know, privilege. And, and so what does that look like? Is it like conversations of trying to convince them to donate more money to a nonprofit or, or like, like a boots on the ground? What, what, what are those conversations sure. like? Yeah. And it's a couple of things. And I, and I, and I have the chance really weekly to have those individual conversations and then less regularly to do them in, in, in larger forums. And what's precipitated this is, is I've heard time and time and again, and this, this sounds, this may sound counterintuitive. This may sound ungrateful. This may sound whatever, but, but there are a lot of people I think who are, who are, they've had a lot of success in their lives, but they're searching for the meaning and the purpose with that success. You know, maybe, maybe they're middle age, maybe they're in the back nine, however you might put it, but they realize like, okay, you know, I've been able to, to, to provide for my family and educate my kids and do these different things. And we have a nice house, but but I'm feeling empty. I'm not feeling connected. And, and that to me is a sign of where, you know, maybe the material and the worldly accomplishments are understandably not enough because they are not enough. That's ultimate. that's not ultimately where our tank gets filled and ultimately where our, mm. where, where the, the quality and the witness of our life is, is judged and evaluated. So that can look like a lot of different things, but it, you know, this whole, trio that people talk about, about giving your time, talent, and treasure. I mean, that, that, that kind of encapsulates all of it, time, talent, and treasure. And so, Hey, if you're super busy and you're doing a lot of things and, and that the expression is, you know, all you can do is stroke checks. Well, guess what? You can stroke checks, stroke Mm -hmm. checks, you know, like where do you feel compelled and, and, and will to do from a talents perspective, you know, I was speaking with somebody recently who's, who's a retired medical doctor. And they're, and they're wondering about, you know, volunteer opportunities. So, well, look, you could go teach, you know, religious education or different kind of things, or, or maybe you find a, a mobile, you know, screening bus hmm. and, and you, you leverage your skills for decades that you did to do those kind of, that could be your talents. And then the time, you know, we've talked a lot about giving your time and giving your time to other people, giving your time to other serve people, being present to the person you're talking with in the moment. You know, somebody told me recently that if you want to hang out with God, God is in the present. Mm. God is never in the past. God is never in the future. If you want to hang out with God, hang out in the present with the person right across from you, because that's where God's hanging out. So it, it can look like any of those things. But then what I when I like to talk with people about it is, but guess what? When you do the giving, you get the getting, because what you get out of helping others is you get joy and you get a connectedness and you get this sense of gratitude that feeds on itself. And, and all those things then can, can come together to we are creating, experiencing and being platforms for love to flourish. And, and that all comes through this idea of, of giving or, or, or serving other people. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. OK, last question. Best cheesesteak in Philly. Oh, boy, that's that's a hot topic around here lately. So I'll, I'll say the, I'm first going to say the one that I most want to try is Angelo's. Because I've not tried Angelo's yet, but we had we had one recently, out, actually out here in in Tony Mainline Bryn Mawr called Bubba's Steaks and Shakes, and uh, Bubba's Steaks and Shakes. It's right next to another one called Johnny's. So if you want to do like a a Pat's Geno's kind of thing, yeah. Johnny's and, and Bubba's Steaks and Shakes are about four doors down from each other, and 
right here in Bryn Mawr. Come, come try them out and let me know. So I'm going to have to. I, I love a good cheesesteak, so I'm, nice. I'm, I'm all, I'm all nice. about it. Well, Bill, I appreciate you taking time out of your day to talk to me. Sure. Do you have a, like a public profile or public social media? Can folks follow you if they want to know more? Yeah, no, I would, I would love to. So um, the, the best way to, to learn about the things is, is unvarnishedfaith.com. So again, that's our website, my website, unvarnishedfaith.com. You can go there, you can join my my newsletter. And I, I send out, you know, typically a couple postings a month on different shows like this one. Certainly when this goes out, I'll, I'll put it out. But other writings or reflections, you can certainly find your way to the book there. But I'm also on Facebook and Instagram as author Bill Yo, And that's Y-O-H. So I uh, would love to have conversations. The book is actually written, Unvarnished Faith for small groups and book clubs and fellowship groups. So it's broken up into six parts. Each part has chapter guides that go with it. And, you know, it, it, I've gotten some great feedback from people who have taken that on in their small groups and book clubs. And if you're close enough, I'll, I'll come sit in with you. So well, love that. So maybe, maybe we could do it over a cheesesteak. So <laughs> perfect. All right, Tim. Bill, thanks for your time. It means a lot. Thanks. God bless. <laughs> 